This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hi, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Not unlike his New Zealand comedy friends, The Flight of the Concords, Taika Waititi comes off as gentle and a bit goofy. He wears colorful outfits and funny faces and photo shoots. But underneath is an artist who knows exactly what he wants out of his work and won't settle for anything less. In 2017, the result was Thor Ragnarok, one of the loosest movies in recent history. Not just in terms of comic book movies, it is truly one of the loosest movies, period. It is a remarkably loose movie. It is riffy and cheeky and giggly. Thor, a demigod, breaks. He laughs on screen in a zillion dollar movie. It's wild this movie exists, but that's Taika for you. He took a behemoth of a franchise and as we discussed in the interview, figured out how to make it into a silly meditation on sensitivity and male relationships, just as he explored in other movies like Hunt for the Wilder People and Boy. And it went on to make $850 million. What did he do with that clout? He made a movie about a lonely German boy whose imaginary friend was Hitler, and then Taika played Hitler. And this movie, which I just described, Jojo Rabbit, which comes out in select theaters this week, has award buzz. Seriously, he's going to be nominated for Oscars for playing Hitler. The same guy that did Thor. Why am I talking like Jerry Seinfeld? In case you haven't seen said silly Thor, uh, or haven't in a while, I will provide some context for the scene you're about to hear. Earlier in the movie, Thor's father, Odin, passes away. To make a bad situation worse, Thor then squares off with his evil older sister, Hela, and she destroys his famous hammer. Other stuff happens, and Thor goes through a wormhole that leads him to the planet of Sakaar, where he's captured and forced to essentially be a gladiator. In the scene I'm about to play, he is now a gladiator, and he's trying to pick a weapon to use in the battle against the reigning champion. He is talking to Korg, a silly alien he befriends and who is voiced by Taika himself. It's, I have to say, a funny scene. So here's Chris Hemsworth as Thor, and Taika Waititi as Korg, and then Taika Waititi as himself, and me as myself. Oh yuck. Still someone's hair and blood all over this. Guys, can you clean up the weapons once you've finished your fight? Disgusting slobs. Oh, Thor. Wanna use a big wooden fork? No. Yeah, not really useful unless you're fighting off three vampires that were huddled together. You know, I really wish I had my hammer. Your hammer? Quite unique. It was made from this, this special metal from the heart of the dying star. And when I spun it really, really fast, it gave me the ability to fly. You rode a hammer? No, I, I didn't ride the hammer. The hammer rode you on your back? No, no, no. I, I used to spin it really fast and it, it, would, it would pull me off the... Oh, my God. The hammer pulled you off? The ground. It would pull me off the ground, up into the air, and I would fly. Every time I threw it, it would always come back to me. Sounds like you had a pretty special and intimate relationship with this hammer and that losing it was almost comparable to losing a loved one. It's a nice way of putting it. So we are here with the director behind the scene you just heard and one of the voices you just heard, Taika Waititi. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I've heard you talk about how you made a sort of sizzle of different movies and scenes to capture, you know, what you were what you were thinking for this. So quickly, kind of what was on it and what do you think clicked with Marvel to hire you from it? It was actually like, um, you know, probably scenes from 20 different movies or something. It was, um, there were just little clips from, man, I can't remember, like a lot of action films and um, and 
probably other super, superhero movies. But then tonally, like for some of the lightness, there were some clips from With Nail and I, from um, uh, oh, we even had some a couple of clips from like Sixteen Candles and Breakfast Club. And I don't really know why at the time because there was no story, so yeah. it was just I was just like I basically just cut together parts of movies that I liked, yeah, and um, and put the whole thing to um to immigrant song and then um kind of that just blasted through the whole thing and at the end um kevin and and lou were they really loved that song <laughs> and as if kind of from it. there they were like well maybe we should just check the the rights on this song see if we can uh, see if we can get it yeah no, i don't know i don't think they realized at the time how expensive that song probably was so fast forward a bit to the the first day of shooting you know what were you expecting and what did you find the first day of shooting, well, we'd been doing prep for about five months down in Australia at the time, so I th- everyone kind of knew each other, and we'd been sort of setting the tone that whole time. Yeah, trying to basically trying to create like a very familial feel um, with everyone, and because that's how my sets usually work is just you know it's got to be fun, and there's a lot of music and 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 lightness, and it's also a very um, creative space where you know where it's where mistakes and um and dumb ideas are encouraged because i think that from dumb ideas usually that's where great mistakes and great jokes come from and you know and so 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 yeah so that it was encouraged the entire time so when you say the sort of pre-production were you doing were you blocking scenes or anything were you doing anything with the actors nope nope uh we didn't really do much rehearsal either all we did was talk about scenes and as the film was you know, being written and rewritten by the writer um, Eric Pearson. I was also planning other jokes and yeah. um, things that I would just write down, have a list of things that I thought might be good in the scene, but didn't bother trying to put it into the script because yeah. I knew it would have to go through five different people to be approved. And often people don't understand the humor or, like, or, or how good a joke could be until they see it and it's you know, displayed for them. Because if you try and write some of those stuff, yeah, sometimes people are just like, oh, I don't, I don't get it. Why is he talking like that? Why, why you know? So it's better just to show them yeah. than just to shoot it. So let's talk about this scene. As you said, sort of the script was being written a little bit separate from you prior to giving an amount of feedback. So for someone like this, what did you like go to the set with? Um, for this particular scene, I think it was a very short a short little piece and it was actually just um there was no weapons uh bit none of that stuff none of the hammers it was more just a um i think it was more just me explaining to thor that you remember you know what it, yeah the shortest version of the scene actually as from memory was just um thor being led through this area and pro- going off for processing and me just saying like good luck <laughs> yeah yeah like, i mean it was just something kind of yeah, just yeah. pretty pretty sort of standard and boring and then i know that chris had wanted to um try and run this joke about the about riding the hammer and stuff so we thought oh well, we might as well be having a conversation at the, at the top of the scene and once we got to set and saw all these like ridiculous weapons that the art department had made and some of them were so stupid they were like you know like this kind of corkscrew sword which was absolutely pointless yeah and, uh, i was like started making jokes about how long it would take to kill someone with a corkscrew sword and like you'd have to get them to sit still while you yeah. like wound it in and then getting it out would be really hard as well and then um and they saw these other things yeah you know, like this wooden like trident yeah you know and then so a lot of these things like i think we just basically started improvising ad-libbing and, and um 
and started making fun of all these weapons and kind of and so there's a really long version of that scene <laughs> which imagine. cuts backwards and forwards where I'm suggesting stuff to him and he's suggesting stuff to me and another bit where he picks up like a hammer from earth that he finds one of these hammers on it and he's like looking at it like it's all sad <laughs> he tries to like throw it and it's like and it never returns um yeah so so it was really a, we sort of just ran with it and sort of said we know we're going to get to the point where he sees valkyrie across the room yeah but up until then why don't we just like milk this for everything it's worth for like how long um well, uh, well i'd like to say we only did four or five takes per per angle but those takes went on for you know 10 minutes each probably so the the part about riding the hammer did he sort of had all the beats of that joke sort of in his head were you like yeah we had to write it out and yeah. so so we knew exactly what we were saying then and then um but then, then we added extra bits while we were doing it, or like um, that bit where he says, "Yeah, um, where I say how um, I talk about his, his relationship with his hammer." Yeah. Um, sort of, oh, so I just added that in at the end, and then his little like his little look. I was like, Mate, "Like, give me a look like that's like the most um, the most beautiful, sensitive thing anyone's ever said to you." <laughs> and he does this look afterwards. It's like. You guys, uh, when I go, yeah, sounds like you had a special intimate relationship with this hammer, blah, 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 like losing a best friend. And um, I can't, I don't, does he say something like, um, um, oh, what does he say? He says, uh, oh, that's a nice way of thinking about it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's like the strangest little like bromance thing going on between these two characters that I found so funny and stupid. This is sort of one of many sort of two-man scenes in the movie or two-person scenes in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think, My specialty. Yeah, I think a lot of your work sort of has two people. I can't usually think of it. You know, I, can't, I don't have any ideas for more than two characters in a scene. What do you like? I mean, it's partly like it feels like stage comedy in the way mm-hmm. that I think probably you know, even the way it's, even the way I shoot a lot of that stuff is very like very simple you know two shot and then cross coverage but and I don't usually like making things too flat and simple but for those things I think it's really good because you know you just because it could ad lib a lot and we want to cut things together later on it's just uh, yeah it's just way better to not try and put any fancy moves in it's like, also you know like stage comedy you know or um, like proscenium um comedy and with the way it's presented it's you want things to be uh, wider you know so you can see everything because i prefer I, I unless it's like for a dialogue joke i really hate being in close-ups in in, in in scenes like that i much prefer just i much prefer two shots yeah just people two people standing talking to each other yeah so how so for as you you're talking about i think there's different means in which people shoot improv some will set up sort of multiple cameras you sort of did a mid shot and then would follow up with close-ups and do different takes yeah, sometimes I don't like cross shooting singles because you can't get the right angle because the camera's always in the way. So usually I do a two shot and a single. But what happens is I usually will, by the time we get warmed up and we get into it, and then I go to move around to the to the opposite side, then I feel like we'll have to come back again <laughs> to do another single. So sometimes I bounce back as well, yeah. and and it's it's luckily people don't get annoyed by it because it's like oh we've got to get that bit that bit's so good now you know we've got to come back and redo it so often i'm almost basically shooting the scene twice yeah is it easier when one of the characters is basically cg that stuff's easier um also because later on in post you can kind of cobble together the perfect take you can like so if i shoot 10 takes in, in a mocap suit 
I can take the best bits of those 10 takes and make like the perfect performance. Yeah, I was thinking that, I know, I remember hearing that you like edited uh, what we do in the shadows for a long time. And I imagine that comedy like this is a lot of it is in editing. What is, you know, for a scene like this, what is the sort of push and pull you're trying to go for? For a scene like this, we've got, you know, we've got some sort of, um, we know that we've got this important information coming up, which is, you know, we're going to discover Valkyrie and we're going to, you know, have that moment and then we've got to get Chris on the floor and get him dragged out to the processing unit. Um, the head of it really is just about setting the tone, helping to set up Korg's character a bit more. and Because I think that character is very important for, um, for when we check in on Thor very important to have gentle characters around and throughout movies and people who aren't a threat because in Sakaar especially every single person he meets is trying to get something from him or trying to kill him or eat him or, or, or exploit him in some way and Korg is pretty much the only person who, who doesn't want anything he just wants to be his buddy yeah. and for an audience watching a film that's full of such ludicrous elements, like, you know, all these crazy monsters and, you know, space Vikings and stuff, it's, I think it's really good for them to be able to check in with someone who's just like a kind of gentle, <laughs> a gentle auntie yeah. or something, you know, <laughs> you know, just softly spoken, kind of like saying to the audience, hey man, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> just stick with this. You're allowed to laugh at this yeah, point. Yeah, you're man. allowed to laugh. Yeah, totally. And I think it's really nice, like, setting up because of the, I think tonally, the, this this thing shares um, a sensibility like that I've done in all of my films, and it's just very different from the m- typical Marvel comedy or from from studio comedy. I think like even broad comedy in America is um, it's sometimes it's so big, but so, often often some it, like I feel like they lose opportunities to take it in a slightly more tangential yeah. or even surreal way um, direction, and. I, mean, I think that this movie it's 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 very much one of my films to the point where I'm so I'm so amazed and surprised that they let me put in certain jokes like towards the end yeah. of the film with you know the destruction of 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 Asgard that's and the stuff that my character says yeah. is so stupid <laughs> but it's actually perfect for this film it really like this whole film I think is built on on taking whatever people's expectations are from a superhero movie and trying to twist them in some way and make them just a bit mm-hmm. askew and a bit off, off kilter. And that really, yeah. And this, and this scene with choosing the weapons, I think, helps to um, remind the audience that this is not one of those other movies. Yeah. I mean, it, I think one of those ways is sort of pace, right? I think there's a certain sort of pace that your your comedy works, and I think a lot of sort of the comedy we associate with New Zealand works is you let a little bit more space than you have in between, like, you know, I think uh, an American comedy can be, like, people basically talking as soon as possible. Like, Yeah. Where well, American that- comedy is often lists of, of um, you know, like, well, I, I guess I'm thinking about things like, um, like there's a certain trend which is, like, I'm going to ad lib in the scene, but all I'm going to do is just, like, come up with ten different, plays on this word or like 10 different yeah. puns or like you as know, quickly as possible as quickly as possible and it just cuts between the two diddle, yeah. diddle, 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 diddle. whereas i feel like sometimes it lacks uh, an actual conversation two really funny people just saying saying the first thing so it's just saying stuff to, the, to yeah. each other and you're like you're really funny i guess that's funny what you're saying but i don't know what you guys are talking about like i don't know what the conversation's about do you deliberately edit like, are you sort of cognizant of sort of the space between sort of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like often will 
extend frames and you know and and i agree i think that space is really good and and i also i'm a firm believer in making the joke go on and on and until it's sort of almost not funny and then pushing it a bit further as well and on what we did in the shadows we we had that um a similar thing with um trying to understand different audiences around the world but there's a bit where this character deacon an interview talks about when he used to be a, a Nazi, a Nazi vampire, and um, we played it in America, and like nobody <laughs> laughed. Whereas in New Zealand, it was like such a good joke, and we got here, and people were like, yeah, but uh, oh, he said his joke was, I used to be a Nazi vampire in the special like vampire squad that mm-hmm. that, that 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 Hitler organized. Uh, he goes. Anyway, I don't know if you know this, but the Nazis lost the war, and uh, after that, I had to get out of there. <laughs> and like people were like, the point is, if you're a vampire and you probably fought in 500 wars, yeah. the World War Two was just another war. Yeah, yeah. So, so I don't know if you know that the Nazis lost. In America, nobody got it. They were like, yeah. What we know, the Nazis lost. We helped beat yeah, them, and, uh, <laughs> and we were like. That's not the joke. <laughs> so, anyway, we were, we were about to take it out of the film, and then we thought, nah, screw it. We're just going to leave it in. We have to teach some people. Is yeah. it hard to sort of have that sort of pace in what is famously a fast-paced genre that is like the big action movie? I think it's great. I think it's amazing. And I think like, you know, another example of this is like, you know, the stuff that shouldn't be in one of these movies, but that successfully works here in, in, th- in this film. This is like when Thor and um, Hulk have a big argument and then the next scene, this is like typical of my movies, cuts to like them sitting on a bed and talking about emotions and like having an apology like you would if you, like like have, like chatting to a, a four-year-old, yeah, you yeah. know. And, and I'd love that it's just, you know, in any other film that would have been completely cut and just gone to the next exciting moment where yeah. they fly, you know, they start flying spaceships. But um, I think it's great that there's so much dialogue, but it's done in a, and just done in such a different way. Yeah, it? it's interesting because it's essentially all these things that are cut because they don't contribute to whatever the point of this a movie is, which is like fighting or whatever. Or, you know, in a lot of Marvel movies, the sort of ones that aren't trying to be very funny, they essentially just have jokes at the end of a thing. Like they'll be like, People have never a conversation, then they'll have a quip somewhere. Yeah, well, the where problem the with that is sort of yeah, this is the opposite, and that really isn't the approach to to shooting the scene. And you know, good example is that weapon scene and the script. You know how the script was written beforehand, and in the script it would have been, it was I remember one joke at the end of the scene, exactly how you're describing. It was like, it was like exposition, exposition, exposition. Thor goes off to the you know to do the fight, and uh, Korg says. Good luck. I know you can win. I've got a lot of faith in you, whatever. And then turns to his mate and says, I don't think he's going to win. Yeah. And it was like, and I was like, I was like, but that is typical of like Hollywood comedies. And well, just like these bigger studio movies in general where they don't even have to be comedies, but when they want to put a joke in, you can tell that that joke was written a year ago yeah. in an office where people didn't even know who was cast or like you know where it was going to be shot and they hadn't seen the props or the yeah. room that it was going to be shot in and and you know and this exactly there's one quip that some smart ass in a you know in a conference room came up with and everyone was like oh yeah that's going to be great and then they just left it at that and never thought about it again and never tried to think deeper about what might be funny and and then but our 
way of doing it is like, yeah, we have that as a suggestion, but we know we're going to find something that's 50 times funnier on the day. So come with ideas. And then when we're in the room and we're like here, you know, it's like, oh yeah, Chris is funny. And like, you know, stuff we're messing with these weapons and stuff like that. Then it all comes about, you know, and yeah, there's great extended scenes in this film. Like that weapon scene, we go on and on and on. I want want to put a a longer version of that. Okay, I saw that. And I was like, oh, they must have just went through every single weapon here. And yeah, them. yeah. And I went through, I basically just went through and just was commenting in front of the art department <laughs> on how shit the props were. For there, there are comedic directors who test their movies like very early and very often. I know like Judd Apatow will like test two weeks into editing. This is probably a little bit more complicated because of effects. How, how did you balance this with sort of getting how an audience was sort of responding to the laughs of it? We tested what we did in the shadows quite a bit, but we would take huge breaks between, like, we would, you know, do a lot of work and then test another version, do a lot of work. But for us, we weren't really, like, concerned with does every single joke, like, you know, it was more like we know what's funny. These ones we're keeping in for us because we find that funny, and eventually one day people will learn that that's funny. And other things were, you know, we were like, okay, that definitely bombed. Guess, let's get rid of it. Um, or we'd, how do we make it work? Is there another version of it? We'd test versions of jokes. And this on Thor, it was, um, you're right, and it was it, it was harder because of all the VFX stuff. You know, it was hard to get, um, hard to test things for an audience. And, you know, because their reaction really is based on what it looks like and, like, how mm-hmm. polished it looks. And, you know, so they would laugh at certain jokes. But you could tell that they were like, I don't understand what I'm supposed to look at here. It's like a blue screen and yeah. it's like dots all over this person's face. Like, what is this? You know? So, um, but the further along it got, the the better it was. And thank God for the testing because, you know, without that, we wouldn't have had, you know, like this rock, paper, scissors joke or we wouldn't have had the, you know, the joke at the end with the dead meek. You filmed that joke and they laughed at it and that was your case to Marvel to be like, yeah, they like that rock, paper, scissors. Oh, you know what was strange is actually that, all of those those weirder jokes were done as jokes on set with no intention of all of, of them being used. And Kevin actually was the one who would like see these alts and see these things and go, like, got to put that in the movie. I'm like, are you insane? Even I was thinking like a studio person was like, you're going to cripple this film, man. No, he's like, no, it's really good. I said, like, okay, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> um, a small thing, but it's only visual, so sorry for those who are only hearing the joke. But in the scene, Meek's in the background, like, trying karate moves or something. Yeah, he's doing all so this. Yes, and well, Meek's got those sword hands, which so when is When does ridiculous. that come in to the process? Like, I imagine that, was that described? We already had that guy. That was a, guy, a mocap guy. We already had him in the scene, but we would always do a pass without him just because, yeah, just in case we weren't going to use him. And... He was already doing some of that wushu stuff, but nowhere near as kind of crazy as, as what you see in the film. And and that was just something that, yeah, again, like everyone in the room, like I think had seen one little bit where he starts, because he had no real personality, otherwise he just stands there. But the fact that, and I love having visual gags all throughout my films and just yeah. having this one character who says nothing, but just does these ludicrous, like, amazing like wushu moves. The thing I find the funniest is he's basically a maggot who's like wearing, who's got like prosthetic limbs and and these knives for hands. Was that something that would added way later? Like while you're getting. Right towards the end, we added 
we made him do way more moves. Yeah. Yeah. Before we talk about Thor, I want to talk about Korg a little bit. I, you've mentioned that he's based on bouncers in, in New Zealand. So what was sort of the evolution from him to that point, and And what do you think makes him a good foil for Thor? Well, he was only ever written in about two scenes. And um, I usually put myself in my films, in fact, always do. So I knew I was going to play something, but um, I just really wasn't sure what character and all the kind of, well, obviously all the big ones were taken. Um, yeah, I was. I, I mean, there were some points when I thought maybe I'll just play like the guy who gets melted in the chair, you know, and that might be a fun thing. Um, something that doesn't really matter and yeah. is not too distracting from my actual job, <laughs> which was quite significant. Sure, yeah. Um, and so, but then I, we, I remember just doing um, a read through of, of a couple of scenes with Chris, and I started doing the offlines for different characters. And that one came up, and I was like, okay, well, I've done my American accent, I've done another accent, I've done this one, you know, trying to, you know, trying to mimic these other actors. Yeah. And uh, then like Korg didn't have a voice, and so I just sort of just started. To, I actually started kind of giving him more of a Reese. Um, uh, voice so it's like Reese Darby's yeah. voice, which is a bit more kind of chirpy, yeah. And um, yeah, he's kind of going to sound like this. Oh, get out! Hey, how's it going, man? Yeah, oh, my name's Cork. Um, it was going to be a little bit like that, and then I started like, messing with it and found the kind of more gentle, sort of uh, sort of tough uh, Auckland um, bouncer kind of uh, uh, voice, which is very colloquial and very New Zealand. And uh, New Zealand does get this accent, they understand that everyone knows someone who talks like this. Um, and that really comes from like these these guys, you know, you you know, from around town, and they're not necessarily bouncers, but just in general, yeah, yeah. like huge, like big, tough, tough-looking Polynesian boys, and uh, who you know, when they open their mouth, there's like this the gentlest giants, they're so, so like so softly spoken and polite, you know, because they're like very respectful of their mums and they're very polite, you know, and um, just nice, you know, and even when they're you know beating you up, they're just nice about it. So sorry, I've got to smash your face in, man. Um, so, uh, and then Chris really loved that because he's, you know, he's Australian. He he's heard that that, that accent right. a lot, and and because um, there's a lot of Kiwis in in Australia, and um, yeah, we just cracked up at the idea of like this alien just sounding like that because it was more of an in joke for us. Yeah. Um, but it happens to be something like a character that's um, so endearing and so. Um, so, so so likable that the that it just I feel like the the voice itself really helps that. Um, he says the word egg, which I feel like you have someone say the Did word. I say? Yeah, Did I, say I was listening back at yeah. Is that some sort of protoplasm or the stuff that's coming out of you, or are they eggs? It looks like eggs. He says egg. I think you have someone say egg in every one of your movies. There's something about that. Is word. that my little Taika Easter egg? The yeah. Taika Universe Easter egg, probably. The egg, the egg saga. I think it might be just that egg is a very New Zealand sounding word. It is, yeah, the, we're the only country to say it in, yeah. outside of um, the food. So Korg is sort of of the many sort of, not sort of big characters, they're sort of like character Pointless char- characters. So, pointless well, but characters. So, but like, <laughs> He's the, a pointless character. But the performance <laughs> is like he, you, he has a voice and he, every, everything is sort of specific and defined in, in in a way comedic characters are but there's also sort of like you know jeff goldblum's performance is big and uh kate is choose a lot of scenery and in, in, in a way that's really uh i think i described it as delicious it's a, mm-hmm. it's a good way to describe it sort of as a director sort of how how are you sort of coaxing that sort of thing out of an actor to be like bring all of a yourself or whatever you want to it well for chris um really wanting wanting thor to be the coolest part of the film. The whole plan was just to, you know, to try and make him like 
Kurt Russell in in his like heroic eighties days. Yeah, you know, was someone just charming and funny and and you know and someone who was tough as well, but but also someone you wanted to be on an adventure with, and um, that's really how I describe Chris yeah. in his normal life. You know, he's just someone you want to hang out with, and I thought, well, that's our that's our way in with the audience, you know, is to get them on the side of of this hero because let's face it it's very hard to relate to any of these superheroes as an audience member and so you have to humanize them in some way you know i think with chris it was really just you know if he if he could be himself be as close to being himself as possible as thor that's the way to do it um and with hulk you know you just got to figure out like what his thing is and i think with with mark it was just like we have to make you more neurotic and more of the kind of um if, we're, if, we're, if this is like an odd couple um, film, you know, then we need you to be the one who's complaining all the time. He's like, yeah, what is this? Where are we going? You know, like he's got to be the kind of winger. Yeah. And um, and Chris is like the mother in the film. He's just like trying to look after everyone. I also like in the film to like after hours. I was like, after hours in space. It's like a guy trying to get home. He's like stuck on the other side of the universe. He's stuck with his like annoying brother and this drunk chick and this like bipolar five-year-old <laughs> and he's got to like yeah. look after everyone and so with all those actors i tried to like find a sort of a way in for them mm-hmm. to make them you know for tessa i said look you're the rat bag of the group don't ever be the person who's trying to get the boys to focus don't ever be the person to who's trying to get them yeah you know to corral them it's like and it was really chaotic, actually, a lot of times because you actually got into a space where it's like Chris was just trying to control everyone and trying to get them you know, out of the scene. Mark was off, like you know, doing his thing, and I was like, so I was like, basically, Mark, you just got to be like a three-year-old, and you know, be distracted by everything, be distracted yeah. all the time because you're on an alien planet, and you're you're also dealing with this sort of this disorder, this brain disorder at the moment where you've got a split personality and every now and then let Hulk kind of seep into that, you know? Um, so this is the best version of Banner and Hulk because of that duality. These yeah. two, these two people who, who are fighting for the same body. And then, uh, yeah. And then with Chris I said, yep, look, just be, you know, just really be yourself. And like, he had full permission just to joke and just to be funny. And, um, and with Kate, with someone like Kate, it was really interesting with her. I didn't really quite know how to approach that character because we didn't want it to be too vampy and just like sort of typically kind of. We didn't want it to be like too much like a cartoon. Yeah. Um, what's great about Kate is that it's never going to be like that. <laughs> She's just awesome, and um, and her whole thing was. I feel when I look at her performance, when I see her as, as Hella, Hella's won all these battles in the past and kind of doesn't really need to try anymore. Yeah, she comes into Asgard, lays waste to everything, and and really is just has the sort of quiet, cool confidence. She's very nonchalant about it all. That's Kate acting in this movie. Mm-hmm. She's won all these Oscars. She's done it all. <laughs> she doesn't need to do much. Yeah, she just comes in, swans in, la-di-da, here I am. Give me another Oscar. <laughs> for, so, for Thor. Yeah. So, so she, yeah, and, which is, and that was actually like the perfect way to, for that character to um, to evolve because if she was like, oh, I've got to do my plan, and you just like, kill them all. You know, she was like really like over the top and, yeah. um, and let her character get too stressed about what she was doing, then it would be like every other villain. So I was watching the scene back and 
there's parts where Chris smiles a little bit. Oh, there's parts all through the movie yes. where he, he cracks up I, for real. That was, it's staggering to see in a Marvel movie. But, yeah. I, you know, there's there's sort of, there's this idea of you create a fun set and then you're like, oh, well, it's fun. But how do you how do you sort of transfer it? Is, is it that you're like willing to be like this actor's having a good time? Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and, and in the edit, it's like choosing those moments saying, I want that little smile and I want that. You know, it's like another, in, in the Hulk suite, and Hulk and Thor are talking about, you know, yeah, who's the brightest fire? Or, yeah, yeah, who's more like fire? You see, Chris cracks up, yeah. and it's actually him laughing. He's like, We're the same, you and I, but just a couple of hot headed fools. Yeah, same. Hulk like fire, mm. Thor like water. Mm. Well, kind of both like fire. But Hulk like real fire. Hulk like raging fire. Thor like smoldering fire. <laughs> And I think an audience appreciates. Obviously, you can't do it in you know in in um, every movie. You can't do it that in like you know Twelve Years a Slave or anything. <laughs> but um, you can you you know in, in films where it's like this film is designed and made to entertain people and to give people a good time. Because we want people smiling as they leave the cinema. And I feel like um, you know, seeing that the actors are actually enjoying themselves, or knowing that the filmmakers were enjoying making this thing, actually makes a huge difference for an audience. Yeah. And I'm not saying like, oh, you've got to show actors corpsing and breaking character, or like you know, because it doesn't go that far because it's real enough and in the moment enough, and they're improvising and you know, they're, they're right there in the moment. That you can get away with it. Well, there's a certain life and vitality to all these scenes where you can tell when the actors are like riffing and firing off each yeah. other they don't know what the other person's going to say so they can, you can tell they're listening they're like oh my god what's he going to say what's he going to say? I know I'm, I kind of know what my next line might be but it all depends on him and like you know and, and if I just gave them like a through line it's like Chris you all you have to do is convince him to come to Asgard Mark you just want to go to Earth <laughs> yeah. okay now talk <laughs> and uh, you yeah. know we do that 20 times and then there's yeah there's shitloads of good material that, that comes from that um, and sometimes it's just that simple because yeah. that scene in particular when they're on the streets of Sakaar talking, it really is about, it's just them, it's just them talking and you can tell that they're talking over the top of each other and stumbling and... Yeah. We'll be back with more Taika Watiti after this word from our sponsor. We're back with Taika Waititi. So uh, we're just talking about Thor, and I was really sort of interested in sort of turning him into this sort of comedic force in that I was rewatching all of the Thor appearances, and he's less funny than I even remembered. Like, there's some sort of fish-out-of-water jokes about him. Yeah. There's one moment in Avengers 2, which I was rewatching, where he thinks for a second that Captain America's going to be able to pick up his hammer, and he, like... Yeah. And then you're like, oh, that's... So, you know... How well, those are all. I think that the not to take away anything, obviously, from other writers, but um, or other films. But yeah, you know, like the fish out of water stuff and Thor one, when he's like, or when he like breaks the cup and like, yeah. you know, or he goes, "I need a horse." They're, you know, they're fine. They're funny moments, but you can just tell, as I was saying before, you know, it's a, I think it's a classic example of writing the joke, you know, six months before. And then not, you know, maybe like, who knows? You know, every set is different, and um, and and I, you know, I wasn't there, but 
you know, who knows? There was there more to do with that, with like you know, breaking that thing on the floor. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, being in that moment, you can push that further, and and also that fish out of water thing. I think you can push even further than and make it. I mean, you know, make it way funnier. How do you then? They weren't of, supposed to be yeah. comedies, yeah. though. So, but then, how do you sort of take this character that is sort of established in incredibly famous movies as at best a straight man, at most sort of this like weird self serious thing, and you didn't. Insert, you could have just like, oh, we'll just sort of push that further and make him so self-serious and everyone else is crazy. But instead, you you allowed him to be a cool character but also, and, and not even just only a, a character's making jokes, but sort of a character that can be butt of jokes in different ways. How do you do that while still keeping it, oh, this is the Thor that was in the previous five movies? Well, basically, we just destroyed the, the other, the, sure. <laughs> everything that went before, yeah. <laughs> which is what Ragnarok is. It's like the death of the uh, of the world, and then it's rebirthed. And I feel like that's what really what this film is: is a rebirthing of all those characters. If you look at all the characters in this film, they're all reboots. Yeah, but we didn't have to recast. So you know, and so Chris is really this is the most different version of Thor, and he said. You know, when people have asked, yeah, would you do another one of these Thor films? He said, yeah, because it doesn't feel like any of that old stuff. It feels like the first outing for this character. And, you know, so, and I feel like that too. If, if I was to do another one, it wouldn't feel like Thor 4. It would just feel like Ragnarok 2. <laughs> and because um, I feel like we've completely yeah. made, made an original yeah. um, film with original characters. Yeah, I wonder if the Russo brothers are ex- how they feel about like, oh, now we have this Thor that is. This oh cool. no, I know. I've talked to them. Like we'd show them footage of him, and you know, because they had heard, well, he's, you've got a really different Thor, and you know, and like basically, like I was like, I'm not gonna think. I love those guys. Hang out with those guys all the time. Um, but I was like, I'm not gonna have. I'm not gonna stress myself out trying to like, you know, save Thor <laughs> for the Avengers movies. Yeah. I'm like, my plan is just to do to strip him down. And mess them up as much as possible, and then just sort of like deliver them on their doorstep and say, "Here's this messy version of the character that you thought you were going to have." Uh, I was uh, watching the TED talk you did many years back, and you you said you like to make movies about outsiders, and obviously you talked about an immigrant song with Thor, but like, I mean, other than the fact that he's like in a planet he's not from, in what way did you feel like? You could make Thor an outsider. In what way is he an outsider in sort of a, a more like maybe metaphoric way? Well, um, again, this you know, this, it, for me, it was about trying to make him, trying to get the audience to empathize with him or to feel for him in some way. To be perfectly honest, you know, he's a rich, he's a rich kid from 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 a, he lives in a castle and in, in outer space. Yeah, I don't, I don't know any of those people, and. Um, but I do know people who who come from dysfunctional families, and there's the, the most dysfunctional family in the universe. Uh, you know, it's um, you know, it's, it's, he barely talks to his parents. Well, his mum's dead now. You know, his brother's trying to kill him his entire life, and you know, and 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 he and he's supposed to be king, and he doesn't want to be a king. Yeah, he's, and so a lot of it is also this father son kind of relationship stuff of him trying to trying to prove himself or trying to like find his own identity and I really relate to that you know because you know my dad was a very, you know was a very big personality in New Zealand and um and in our area was like very well known and I'm, I've always been trying to kind of do my own thing separate to him but whilst at the same time also trying to impress him so yeah so yeah. we're just pretty much all guys and yeah. probably most girls as well, yeah we're choosing a parent to, to impress so I kind of like that was my sort of end with yeah. like you know with him and, and in terms of him being an outsider 
I feel like he's the Benjamin Braddock of this um, franchise. You know, he's he's. You know, if you look at the Graduate, you shouldn't really care about this rich kid. Yeah. You know, he's got it all. But there's a way of like, like he is. If you, throughout the film, he is an outsider. He's an outsider in his household because he's feeling he has, thinks differently to everyone else. He's an outsider in the you know in society because everyone's the you know, that classic scene where. Everyone's, you know, all the hippies are dancing and singing against the end, and he's just talking to um, mm-hmm. to Elaine in the car. And you can tell, like, he's just like he's the odd one out in the entire movie, and yeah. and it's like looking at things like that, looking at, f- at films like that that have gone before, where I feel like, yeah, he is marginalized. He is some, he is one of the um, yeah the, uh, the outsiders. It's, it's interesting because I was thinking about another thing which you've <laughs> described your work as sort of exploring sort of the clumsiness of humanity and you have this guy who hypothetically is not a human he's either a demigod or a god or like at least a sort of alien and it it seems like or the the clumsiness is that he is he's trying to figure out how to be whatever a human is would you you yeah he is and he's 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 trying to find himself and i think at the heart of most of the characters that i love working with or that I've put in my films is that they're, they're somebody who's just trying to be liked, mm-hmm. who's just trying to be loved, or trying to be cool. Yeah, and um, and and that's really that's re- I mean that's if if you make Thor like that, then you understand like what he's been. You know, his, he spent his entire life trying to be, just trying to be loved, and just try, you know. And I think that's really like. It's um, you know I, I can sympathize and empathize yeah. with characters like that because we all want to be loved. It's it's interesting because I was thinking about this scene and like the you know the the joke at the end, which is that oh it seems like this losing this hammer is comparable to losing a loved one, and I just realized like oh his dad died like uh, yesterday, yeah, and it's sort totally. of like not processed at all. And I was thinking sort of that in the context of the rest of your work, and there's often these sort of like people that are trying to be tough, and as a result cannot communicate their feelings mm, yeah <laughs> um so how do you what does it mean to bring that to superheroes which are sort of like created to be these sort of bastions of masculinity or whatever i don't know i like i i yeah i really don't like macho things you know if you know what i mean it's like there's something kind of gross about that even though i think i'm a pretty good example of a, a real man um <laughs> I'm strong and tough, and you know, I can I can fight and drink, um, but I'm also very sensitive, like sure. a like a daffodil. <laughs> I love see. I like looking at the kind of the feminine side of men, mm-hmm. and that's not like a weak side. Like this is sort of stupid way of thinking about it. It's the it's the side that is like the more caring side. You know, I love seeing this version of Thor who cares about everybody and wants to help everyone. And yeah, and and. He acts cool all the time, but beneath it all, he's deeply insecure. And because that's most men that I know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. And like, like well, in what we do in the shadows, you know, my character basically, I'm playing a version, a cross between C3PO and my mum. And someone who's just like, just wants everyone to be okay and like wants to look after the house and keep things tidy. Um, but it's just a sort of real nerdy you know, uncool geek. And it's really finding those things, yeah, for me, because I'm like, that's the way that we make this film interesting is what is the weirdest, like, opposite version of, of this tough space, space Viking that yeah. we can make, you know, even Hulk. Hulk is like this big thing. And he's just, he's just like a grumpy, like, you know, 
precocious child. You know, he's like he's basically like a spoiled kid yeah. in this movie. And um and it's I mean it's interesting because there's a you know there's a childlike quality to a lot of your work and there's a childlike quality even to this Thor and in like the way that he talks about like I swing the hammer really fast and it makes me fly. And you're like, what are you like a six year old? <laughs> totally, totally. But that's how I I mean like yeah. and I notice I because I, I just pay, basically pick up on conversations people have and I steal a lot of those things for for my films and. You see guys talking about football or baseball or describing something they mm-hmm. like, like grown-ups. You see grown-ups, these hipsters, and you know, like describing making a coffee or like you know brewing some beer and how passionate they get. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, and then I put all the yeast in <laughs> and I stir it and I stir it 15 times to the right and then 15 times to the left. Yeah. And you can see like, oh, my God, you are just an excited little <laughs> six-year-old about this stupid craft beer. I was wondering how sort of, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about sort of whatever the, the, the tone that you're able to capture. How does that sort of then reconnect to sort of what the movie is sort of texturally about sort of him accepting being a hero, him accepting being a king, Asgard's a people, not a place? I have no idea. I was like, I'm real, <laughs> honestly, I, I, I would, I, I gave it a little bit of thought, but sometimes I just, I, often I was like, you know what, I'm going to let Marvel deal with that. Because that's their department of mm-hmm. you know like I know this I know how to tell a story, but I'm having so much fun. I'm having so much fun subverting all this and like telling these weird jokes and making this the weirdest Marvel movie ever. Marvel's job, really. I mean, that's why they hired me. If if you've seen my movies, yeah. you don't hire me for any other reason other yeah. than what I've done. Um, and you know, so Marvel's job really is to look after their characters, look after their source material, and make sure I don't completely break it. And then, and then also um, make sure that you know it doesn't negatively affect the rest of the movies or mm-hmm. like how how they all interweave. And sure. that. so I don't understand that, and I never like watched you know I didn't watch all those movies with the eye of like oh how's this link up oh mm-hmm. how, what year was this when Nick Fury in, you know encountered this thing and yeah and so. And I feel like that's why it's a good partnership because, like, I was way more free because I think that had I been really concerned with the story, you know, like, yeah, the intricacies of the story and, and you know, and all of the Marvel lore and the fan stuff and, you know, I would have I would probably, or, or if I'd written, written it and, you know, been really hung up on, you know, my words, um, I probably would have had a worse time and probably yeah. would have been controlled a lot more. But as it stood, like, you know, if I focused on the things I I think I'm good at, Marvel gave me so much freedom to run with that and to play in that sandbox, knowing that they could mm. just keep me in my lane. Yeah. You know? <laughs> they they ultimately they're like, Okay, good work, Tiger. Can you just like we'll just keep it this way for now, okay? One thing that it seems to connect, which is sort of you know, they they repeat a lot towards the end, which is like Asgard is a people, not a place. And I was thinking about sort of how you talk about making this movie and how you talk about how you'd like to do a fourth movie because you like the sort of people. I mean, when you think about your work, do you think of the product or the process of making it? You know, like, is Thor Ragnarok the two years of making it or is Thor Ragnarok the piece for you? I think it's the whole thing. Yeah, for me, it was like, it started right from the beginning. And I've been thinking about, you know, I, I like to say, oh, no, I only just concentrated on jokes and stuff. I've been thinking about every element and aspect of this film for two years and, it's been a ma- like it's a massive stress, but I always remind myself it's just like I'm like so lucky to have this job, and that 
even just having a job, mm-hmm. let alone working in the in this industry where and there's and and you know I would often get to see it and be like, man, how's this even? How's this even considered work? It's so fun and and so I really um, you know, it was a long process, but I I loved every part of it and um and I loved being being paired up with such creative people, like amazing minds and you know people who are way better at. These, I, on my films, I'm used to doing most of the things myself, and um, you know, this was a chance to work with people who are way better than I am at storyboards or yeah. at you know, <laughs> like uh, yeah, you know, designing you know, designing costumes or, or props or stuff. When I when I first got the job, I, I was I, had, I was very fearful of like of being the film after you know they'd made 16 films or whatever you know my concern was like is this the film that breaks marvel like is this am i going to be the one because mm-hmm. it's got to happen sometime surely it's like am i the <laughs> am i the bottom jenga piece that like gets pulled out that's like topples everything yeah and and i felt like in a way it, it that's a good a good place to be in creatively to be nervous and to be, you know, to to have those thoughts in the back of your head. I think if you're too confident about things, that's when you can run into problems. What I didn't do was like let those nerves affect me, you know, creatively. Um, I just came in and said, okay, well, look, they've hired me for a reason. I'm going to come in and do what I'm good at, and let them look, you know, just let them do, you know, yeah. like watch me. What was amazing is like we were just doing stuff in, in Australia, and I kept looking over my shoulder, expecting some executive person to come in, like say, "You're fired," <laughs> and you know, and Mike Ruffalo would come up to me a few times. He's like, "Dude, we're fired. Like, <laughs> we, we are not coming back on Monday. They're not surely when they see these dailies, they are not. They're going to be, what the fuck are you guys doing down there?" Um, but they never said, no one said yeah. anything. It was just like the only notes we'd get on set would be like, uh, "I don't know." Um, Kevin doesn't like that table, you know, and um, you know, and it's like, okay, we'll just swap the table, and they're all they'll say, you know what, maybe we don't have to bother swapping the table; we'll just fix it later in post. Um, yeah, so it was really just, it was just really loose, and and I felt like, in a way, that's what Ragnarok is. It's you know, it's it's like a kind of destruction of the old films and everything that's gone before. Mm. And then recreating it and being fresh, and that's why Marvel's doing so well. It's like they are not afraid to break it, yeah. to, you know, to actually to smash it, <laughs> and and then recreate it. And yeah, and like the play and you know the the um, the play in, in the film. Hold on, I'm sorry, I tried to rule Earth. They'd be lucky to have you. I'm sorry about that thing with the tesseract. I just couldn't help myself. I'm a trickster. Yes, so mischievous. Yeah. I will tell Father what you did here today. I didn't do it for him. I didn't do it for him. (sighs) And so Loki died of his wounds. That really is our message to the audience, saying whatever you have held on to, whatever you fell in love with in the last films 
we're disrespectfully yeah. we're re- allow us to respectfully disrespect that stuff. But, yeah, it's a, you know, it's, it's a middle finger to the seriousness of the other Thor. Yeah, well, it's more like a sort of it's like a, a light a light kind of punch on the arm. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's a middle finger. Yeah, it's more of a it's more of a or- yeah. It's just like look, let's make fun of that stuff because it's such a great scene, and yeah, we we shot like shot for shot, like redid yeah. it, and. Um, you know, and 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 it's really like that was our goodbye to those films at the end of that play, mm-hmm. and from then on, the film does its own thing. And yeah, yeah, I think right, even with the poster, you know, it's like we just like the post. This film, okay, well, what Judith Weston is a really great sort of uh, what do we say, like script um, advisor slash yeah. um, teacher, and she, um, she she read the script, and she I remember her saying to me, she was like. Before we started shooting, I said, what do you think? And she said, okay, well, here's the good thing. You are basically a six-year-old um, in a grown-up's body. And when I look at the script and, like, how you guys have approached this, it, it, it's basically, like, a bunch of six-year-olds <laughs> wrote a movie and then have been given $200 million <laughs> to make that movie, yeah. and no one is saying no to them. Um, she's like, just make the six-year-old's movie. Make the movie you know mm-hmm. just don't hold back you know put everything in she's like put all the colors in put all the animals and the monsters and the zombies she's like just do it all and don't hold back because if you hold back and there's like oh there's one zombie and you know one creature and the, you know it's a sort of desaturated movie it doesn't work you've got to like flash gordonify this thing and go camp and just yeah. go you know go over the top <laughs> So that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is called the laughing round. So it's like a lightning round because it's comedy. It's laughing round. Okay, cool. What's your favorite Michael Jackson song to dance to? And what's your favorite Michael Jackson song to sing along to? Um, my favorite one to um, dance to is Smooth Criminal. My favorite one to sing along to is Human Nature. Do you have a favorite item of clothing? Yes, the striped top I'm wearing. <laughs> can you describe it a little bit just so people can? Uh, it's uh, got stripes. Stripes. Horizontal. What was your... F- the first joke you think of that you cut that you know you want to put in the deleted scenes. Well, look, most of the um, deleted scenes are actually not deleted. They're extended versions of these scenes, and um, most of them uh, obviously um, involve Jeff Goldblum. So, um, yeah, my favorite joke is um, is actually the, the cousin being melted in the chair. And there's a long sort of four or five minute um, preamble to that melting, and um, it's all about Jeff trying to figure out what the cousin, what, you know, what the cousin did and like and one part of it is um is uh the cousin's barely he can be he can barely talk and um because he's so nervous and, he, and jeff says so what did you do you tell me what you did and he said i was camping i was camping he was always trying to say was like, i was gambling and uh he was like, i was camping and chris goes uh camping i think he was camping that's not so bad and jeff goes oh no, no, no. camping's bad <laughs> I just remember the I pardon you to to death you from from life. life. Yeah, yeah. You're officially pardoned from life. I still can't believe that joke is in a movie. Um, so uh, yeah, no, actually, there's another great one. Every time he said it, Chris cracked up. He couldn't like because I just I just whispered to Jeff. Say I said I say I pardon you, 
And then as he turns, from life. And, uh, and he did that. And like, we tried to do it like five times and Chris could not, he could not keep a straight face. Uh, from your, your time doing live comedy, do you ever have a sketch or scene or joke that never worked in front of a live audience, but you still think is the funniest thing you've ever done? And you'll go to your grave being like, this was funny, even if people don't. Well, I feel like, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely from some of the old sketch stuff, there's like, I mean, there's a way of describing it, you know, this popular way of describing the kind of comedy that we used to do, or particularly me, was uh, is the anti-comedy, where it's basically how unfunny can you be until the audience laughs? I don't know if anything, I, I mean, I definitely know that the stuff wasn't as funny as it could be if they weren't laughing, but I particularly like this um, this kind of little musical thing that Jermaine and I did about a... Um, what happened? It was like a guy, I think he gets infected by scissors and uh, he starts turning into kind of like Edward Scissorhand kind of kind of dude. And um, it was like a rock opera. In retrospect, it probably, I mean, we could have practiced a bit more. Mm-hmm. But the audience really were pretty bored by that. And um, I know it was really good. Do you have a favorite joke joke? Um, yeah, I have a favorite joke, and it's one that I'm, I make uh, I make up all these um, knock-knock jokes. So let's do it. Knock-knock. Who's there? Cabbage. Cabbage who? Just a cabbage that someone's <laughs> just stuck on your doorstep. But it's a big one, and uh, it's wedged right in there. And for you, in order for you to get out of your house, you have to eat your way through this cabbage. Knock-knock. Who's there? Uh, this is Taika. Is John there? <laughs> uh, is Taika is John Is this there? number 22? <laughs> Peacock Street? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, okay. I'm just looking for John. <laughs> oh, hold on. Let's check my phone. Oh, no, sorry, it's 24. <laughs> sorry, next door. Uh, sorry to bother you. Bye. That, that'll do it. <laughs> That's it for another episode of Good One. Follow Taika on social media at Taika Waititi. Good One is produced by me and Mike Kamate. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write our review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Have a good one. That was a headgum podcast.